0: This is True Crime Psychology and Personality, where we discuss the pathology behind some of the most horrific crimes and those who committed them from a scientifically informed perspective. I'm Dr. Todd Grande. I have a PhD in Counselor Education and Supervision, and I'm a licensed professional counselor of mental health. Dr. Todd Grande, that's my YouTube channel. Today's question is, can I analyze the case of Kimberly Cargill? Kimberly Cargill was born in Mississippi on November 30, 1966. Her mother had an affair, divorced her father, and remarried. When Kimberly was 12, the family moved to Tyler, Texas. She graduated from high school and attended classes at a community college. She wanted to be a nurse. She dropped out and took a job as an administrative assistant at a law firm. She began dating a man who worked there. They married in 1988 relationship was characterized by violence. They had a son in 1990. The couple continued to argue. After Kimberly tried to strike her husband with a vehicle, she was sent to a mental health facility. She was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. Her relationship with her husband was over. He was awarded custody of their son. At this point, Kimberly met a man named Brian Cargill on a blind date. Brian had also been married before, They went to see the 1993 movie, So I Married an Axe Murderer, a title which captured the quality of their future relationship reasonably well. A few weeks after they started dating, Kimberly invited Brian to a divorce support group at a local church. Brian arrived first and sat down in the meeting. After Kimberly arrived, she was angry because he entered the meeting without waiting for her. All of a sudden, her mood changed, and she acted as if she was greatly attracted to him she became romantic. In an effort to secure a nomination for Poor Decision Maker of the Year, Brian moved in with Kimberly. Right away, he realized that she was demanding and controlling. He attempted to break up with her several times, but she talked him into staying. He finally decided he was serious and went to talk to her. She told him that she was pregnant, even though she had informed him previously that she could not get pregnant. She insisted that they get married and threatened to block him out of his child's life if he didn't agree. Brian and Kimberly ended up getting married. They had a son named Jamie. The couple continued having arguments. On one occasion, Kimberly threw a hammer at his head, which actually stuck in the wall by the claw. Brian decided to leave it in the wall to remind Kimberly what happened. It stayed there for several days. Kimberly wasn't concerned about removing it either. Perhaps she wanted to leave it there as a reminder to him regarding what she was capable of. After being married for a year, the couple divorced. Brian gained custody of Jamie. On one occasion, when the father and son were watching television, they disagreed about what program to watch. Jamie stood in front of the television, and Brian physically moved him out of the way. During this process, Jamie hit his head. Jamie contacted his mother, who hired a lawyer, and had Jamie sign an affidavit saying that Brian physically attacked him. The court removed Jamie from Brian's custody and sent him to live with Kimberly. Jamie had a terrible time living with his mother. She physically attacked him several times and otherwise mistreated him. As this was going on, Kimberly returned to school and became a nurse. She continued having romantic relationships. She had two more sons with two different men. Those relationships ended quickly. Her sons were named Zach and Luke. Kimberly continued to engage in violence. She would lock Jamie in his room. She turned around the doorknob so the lock was on the outside. On one occasion, after an argument about video games, she attempted to strangle him with a cord from an Xbox. Jamie called the police, but they believed Kimberly's story. She made it seem as though Jamie was an out of control and violent young man. His younger brother, Zach, supported Kimberly's story because she manipulated him. Jamie was cited for assault, but the case was eventually dismissed. Jamie ran away several times. Each time the police would bring him home, they did not appear to make any effort to help him. On one occasion, Jamie was in Kimberly's room, an area that was off limits. His mother flew into a rage and choked him after slamming his head on the floor repeatedly. She discontinued her attack and he ran out of the house. He contacted his father, Brian, who took pictures of the injuries. This was enough for the court to take Jamie away from Kimberly and return him to Brian. Now moving to the timeline of the crime. Kimberly had hired a babysitter named Cherry Walker to look after her son, Luke. Cherry had a developmental disability. Her IQ was 56, 44 points below average. This is just under three standard deviations below the mean. She had the daily living skills of a nine-year-old and suffered from seizures. She lived alone, but received help every day from a caretaker named Paula Wheeler. During her time working as a babysitter for Kimberly, Cherry witnessed Kimberly mistreating Zach and Luke. Kimberly was investigated by Child Protective Services for her behavior toward her sons. Eventually, both were removed from her custody. Kimberly's mother was given temporary custody of Luke, but Kimberly picked Luke up from daycare and refused to return him to her mother. CPS obtained an emergency order of protection, and a hearing was scheduled for June 23, 2010. On June 18, five days before the hearing, Cherry Walker was subpoenaed to testify at this hearing. She was not happy about testifying. She called Kimberly, who told her to stay quiet about the subpoena. Kimberly offered to hide Cherry at her house on the day of the hearing. During this conversation, Kimberly realized that Cherry's caretaker, Paula Wheeler, was in the room with Cherry. She had Cherry put her on the phone. Kimberly suggested to Paula that it was not in Cherry's best interest to testify, and Kimberly was worried she was going to lose custody of her son, Luke. Later that same day, Kimberly found out that a neighbor named Marcy Fulton, who would occasionally babysit Luke, also received a subpoena. Kimberly told Marcy to leave town or hide in her house, meaning Kimberly's house. She added that if Marcy insisted on testifying, she should only say good things about her. Kimberly called two friends and expressed concerns about Cherry being subpoenaed, suggesting that she would lose custody of Luke due to the testimony Cherry Walker contacted Marcy Fulton. The pair agreed they would not lie for Kimberly. They were both going to tell the truth at this upcoming hearing. Cherry told Marcy that Kimberly invited her to dinner. She also told Paula Wheeler the same thing. Cherry explained how she was nervous and did not want to go with Kimberly to dinner. Paula advised her to take her medicine, go to bed, and not answer the door. Unfortunately for Cherry, Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, Vanessa. Hi, Amy. And hi, hi, true true crime crime fans. fans. We're the co-hosts of She Goes by Jane. Every week, we'll be covering the story of a missing or unidentified woman in the United States. Stories you may have heard before. And ones whose stories didn't make it into the news. We've been covering these stories for a while. First in Amy's book of poetry, Doe. And then in Vanessa's documentary, She. But now we want to share them with you here on She Goes By Jane. And each week we'll be joined by a special guest who will read a poem in honor of the women we talk about. Can we say who? We can say who. We'll be joined by actresses like Coco Jones and Gabrielle Ruiz. And musicians like Stephanie Quayle and Kelly Moneymaker. Along with authors like Louise Penny. And Catherine McKenzie. So check out She Goes By Jane wherever you get your podcasts. Or check out Evergreen Podcasts and their true crime channel, Killer Podcasts. We can't wait to bring you these stories. The next day at 3.18 p.m., her partially burned body was found on the side of the road in a rural area. Kimberly was the obvious suspect. She was arrested on June 24 on unrelated charges and later charged with murder. During her trial in 2012, here's the story that she provided. Kimberly picked up Cherry for dinner at 8.30 p.m. She wanted to talk about her upcoming testimony. The pair arrived at dinner after Kimberly stopped at her house briefly. They enjoyed pleasant conversation. Cherry wanted to go to a bar after dinner, but Kimberly did not want to do that. Therefore, she started driving Cherry home. When Cherry realized where Kimberly was driving, she became upset and had a seizure. Kimberly claimed that she didn't call 911 because her cell phone was not on her. She admitted that she drove right by a hospital after the seizure started. She would have turned around, but she was in the wrong lane. I guess she just had an amazing commitment to traffic safety. Kimberly drove to the parking lot of Cherry's apartment. After she opened the passenger side door of her vehicle, Cherry fell to the pavement and stopped moving. Kimberly knocked on a few apartment doors to try to find help, but nobody answered. Kimberly performed CPR to no avail. She started driving back toward the hospital, but then realized that Cherry was dead, and this didn't look too good for her. She drove to a rural area, pulled Cherry out of the vehicle, poured lighter fluid on her body, and ignited it. Kimberly claimed that she just happened to have lighter fluid in the trunk of her vehicle. Kimberly said the reason she burned the body was to destroy any DNA that she may have left during her performance of CPR. Kimberly was convicted of murder and sentenced to death. Now moving to my analysis. Was Kimberly Cargill actually guilty? This case seems clear-cut, but some people have their doubts because Cherry could have died from some other cause. Let's take a look at the evidence both for and against the idea that Kimberly was guilty, starting with the inculpatory factors. The autopsy revealed that Cherry had signs of being asphyxiated. In addition, she had a number of bumps and bruises on her forehead, right arm and shoulder, left elbow, and right thigh. These were non-lethal injuries, but inconsistent with dying from a seizure. Kimberly had purchased $5 worth of gasoline earlier that evening, which would be the right amount to fill a two-gallon container. There was more accelerant on the neck of Cherry's body than on any other location, as if somebody was trying to make sure no evidence was collected specifically from that area. Even though Cherry Walker had an extensive history of seizures, And was diagnosed with epilepsy, only two to three percent of individuals with epilepsy will die suddenly. Kimberly Cargill had a clear motive. She was about to lose custody of her last son. On the day Cherry was killed, Kimberly made it clear to several people she was very upset about Cherry testifying, and that her testimony would result in a loss of custody. Kimberly left work early on the day Cherry died, which was out of the ordinary. She also didn't respond to repeated calls from the hospital. They were trying to get a hold of her because they were concerned about whether she gave medication to a particular patient. Kimberly did not return their calls until after midnight. Kimberly made an extensive effort to destroy evidence. She had a long history of physical aggression and negative interactions with law enforcement, and she repeatedly demonstrated a tendency to get violent and could not control her anger. Moving to the exculpatory factors, it is technically possible to experience sudden death from epilepsy. Cherry reported having seizures as recently as April of 2010. The authorities were unable to determine with certainty how Cherry Walker died. When considering all the evidence, do I think that Kimberly was guilty? Yes, I think she was guilty in reality and guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Her story just doesn't make any sense. Her babysitter had a seizure, so she drove 30 or 40 minutes away, dumped her body, and set it on fire. If somebody disposes of a body in that manner, they eliminate a lot of doubt as to their guilt. Now, moving to some other items that stood out to me in this case. Item number one Kimberly had a long history of violence toward romantic partners, yet she was always able to find a new lover. She was extremely effective at appearing to be romantic and loving at times and she was highly manipulative. In addition, she threatened lovers with all types of consequences if they left her, and she lied about her ability to become pregnant, almost certainly to trap them in the relationship by becoming pregnant. Item number two, as I mentioned, Kimberly was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. She appeared to have a number of traits of cluster B personality pathology. From borderline, she had a fear of abandonment, and affective instability. She had narcissistic traits like being vindictive, self-centered, and manipulative. She had antisocial traits like aggression and impulsivity. And from histrionic, she had rapidly shifting emotions. She would appear loving and caring in one moment, but in the next, she would fly into a rage. Item number three is Kimberly's ability to manipulate. Even though she was quick to anger, she would calm down enough to carefully plan and execute a strategy. During many of her confrontations with law enforcement, she was able to effectively deceive them. She would recruit allies to maintain her side of the story. In this way, she was Machiavellian. So here we had a person who suffered from terrible anger and could fly into a rage, but could also be cold, vindictive, and calculating. A dangerous combination. Item number four, Sometimes when a person has a fear of abandonment, they become more dangerous as they come closer to losing everything. Kimberly had four sons. Luke was the last one of whom she had the potential to retain custody. If she lost him, there was no one else to lose. This made her particularly dangerous and desperate. I think this is what pushed her to commit murder. She had been aggressive many times in the past, but had never killed anybody. Now moving to my final thoughts, at least some of the men who interacted romantically with Kimberly knew, or should have known, that she was unstable. She was intolerant of even small violations of her expectations. She had mood swings, she was unreasonable, she was verbally and physically aggressive, and she was frequently deceptive. Maybe they believed that she was not as destructive as she seemed, or they thought she would change, but either way, it was obvious her behavior was problematic. Romance has a way of clouding judgment. This has been True Crime Psychology and Personality from Ars Longa Media. This content is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis.